Hello, Mage fans, and welcome to Mage the Podcast, the podcast where we work hard towards ascension so you don't have to. I'm your host, Adam Simpson. I'm joined by co-host Terry Robinson, and today on Tomes of Magic, we are going to bring you Las Vegas by night. No, sorry. Uh, Rage, Rage across, across Las, Las Vegas. Vegas. <laughs> no, it's the Fallen Tower Las Vegas. I'm sorry, everybody. I've been uh, in the world of darkness a little too long here, but uh, this is the first and only city guidebook for Mage the Ascension, since mages tend to uh, move around a bit. But uh, today we're going to get into the book. We're going to discuss how good it is, uh, what it has in it, and uh, what we think of it. So before we get into the details, uh, why don't we open it up for announcements? And also, Terry, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I super appreciated your... Adam doesn't uh, always tell me what like intro Adam's going to do in the same way I don't necessarily share the quote I'm going to do. But I really like the uh, Rage Across... Las Vegas, and I look forward to us doing the Wraith book, like the uh, like Dark Kingdom of Poker Chips, or the Changeling Supplement, the Duchy of Slot Machines, or something like that, to uh, to, to to round things out. My only announcement is, uh, you and I before the show were talking about the next few books, and we got two big ones, and then it's kind of clear sailing through the rest of Revise, which has me excited and sad and 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 hopeful and and a whole bunch of emotions. And now with this book, we actually have resonance rules to talk about how those feelings could affect our magic. So I'm excited to do that. So those, that's all I have for announcements. Definitely. And uh, also, Terry and I have been talking this past week about how a lot of the uh, Las Vegas material in this book is actually outdated. I mean, it's, it's 18 years old. That's to be expected. And the strip changes faster than uh, Main Street in most uh, uh, North American cities. So we think uh, some research is in order to offer um, updated information about Las Vegas to all those mage fans who want to use it in their games. Um, I'm thinking probably a week, a week and a half on the strip for Terry and I. Maybe uh, Bellagio sounds nice. Uh, take in a few shows and see how Las Vegas is today so we can bring that updated material to our mage fans. We went to our executive producers, pitched the idea. They said, nice try. Have you been to Vegas before? I've been a number of times. Yes. Yeah, me too. Um, it's it's one of those things where if someone were to ask me, like, did you ever go to Las Vegas? I'd be like, no, I've never gone to Las Vegas. But if you were to be like, have you ever been in Las Vegas? Oh, yes, I've been in Las Vegas any number of times. It's just kind of a thing that seemingly happens to adults in the United States. You find yourself in Las Vegas. You're like, how did I get here? I guess it has been a couple <laughs> of years. Yeah, maybe I will go to a buffet. And it just kind of happens. Like, it's not, <laughs> it just kind of occurs to you, especially if you're in a job that has like conventions or trade shows or something like that. You just find yourself at the, at the Rio or the, or the Tropicana or the, or the MGM or something. And you're like, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm in Las Vegas right now. So well, that makes sense. So. Yeah, certainly. I was uh, sales for a software company in my 20s, and they kept sending me to industry trade shows that were inevitably somewhere on the Strip. And so, yeah, I've stayed on the Strip, just off the Strip, been there repeatedly. I've been with friends where we had road trips, and it's like, oh, why don't we just go a little out of the way, and we'll be in Vegas. And so, yeah. Well, uh, this book came out in 2003, clocks in at 124 pages. Uh, authors are Conrad Hubbard and Rachel Udell. This book gives us a good look at the city of Las Vegas, um, what mages are there, how you could use it in your own chronicles, and uh, it works it nicely into the meta plot of late, later revised editions. So it'll be, be fun to take a look. Yeah, why don't we start that walkthrough? The opening fiction, called The Prelude, is one of the longest opening fictions that we get in Revised. It, it goes on for about nine pages and details a group of tradition mages who are doing magey stuff in Lost Magemus. 
it details the strange magic. The characters start by driving into the city at a particular time of the year, and they always tune to a particular radio channel where a Art Bell-like figure is receiving calls from people who talk about strange phenomena that happened. We hear about a rad magic effect that occurred where a whole bunch of poker chips or casino chips were replaced with different ones and moved about $20 million in cash. And the characters are are baffled by this because of the sheer audacity of doing it and also how hard it is to do that kind of magic in Las Vegas. Uh, it, it goes through various relationships these traditionalists have. And then at the final part, you get a, a brief glimpse into a meeting where some traditionalists and some technocrats are talking about the thing that they're doing and the fondest that they're possibly trying to ferret out and how everyone in this plan has their own uh, particular role to play. The first chapter, the introduction, is called Essence of a Billion Lights. And it starts with the question of, so this is the first and only made city book. Why are we doing Las Vegas? Out of the gate, they say that a made city book is hard. Uh, Correspondence 3 exists and can, can burn a hole through just about any plot that you can come up with. It was chosen because it kind of best represents the idea that if the traditions want to beat the technocracy, they really need to be in a technocracy stronghold. So they gave a city where there is a very clear technocratic bend to it, but still has enough dynamism and mystery to showcase what a traditionalist can do. The themes listed are selfishness, that Las Vegas is the home of vice, uh, risk, that nothing can come to you without some sort of venture, and it returns to the idea that apathy was the cornerstone of why the Ascension War ended with nobody winning. It kind of talks about Las Vegas and some of its demographics and how it's kind of uh, kind of special. As a note, Clark County, which contains Las Vegas and its surrounding areas, is three-quarters of the population of the state of Nevada. So Nevada is very much Clark County and other. It also talks about the atmosphere that it is going for, that it is an atmosphere of transience, that very few people are from Las Vegas, but a lot of people go through it. And later on, that is presented as an idea as a way to provide plot to a game that you can always have uh, people from out of town coming into town. The area itself is ever-changing. It is growing quite rapidly. Between 1990 and when this book came out, the population of Las Vegas nearly doubled. Once again, between this book having come out and now, the population has again nearly doubled, I believe, coming in at around 2.5 million. It talks about there being a air of unreality to Las Vegas, which I very much agree with. It, there are certain critical ways in which having that much money in a small spot dedicated to distracting entertainment, as it were, uh, very much creates a sense of it being a strange and liminal place in some ways. And then it gives us a walkthrough of the chapters. After that, it gives us a few resources. It's interesting to see the uh, sources up front, as it were. And this is one of the books that really bangs out about, like, I don't know why you're buying these books still, because there's the internet out there. And you're like, oh, man, that's 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 some foreshadowing. Yeah, I, this intro was longer than a lot of revised edition intros. And I, I actually liked it. I, I found it more useful even than the short ones in, in so many of the previous books. So uh, I, I like how they, they put this one together. Chapter one is entitled Primordial and Present, and it starts off with a very long history. The history is listed as from History Enlightened, Volume 10, the America's Revised American Edition by Nicole C. Bellwether. 
H-B-O-O-H, which I assume is Order of Hermes. And I like that because it suggests that there is a single volume or set of volumes that outlines an enlightened history of the world. And boy, would I like to get my hands on that. Las Vegas, where it is, it sits in the middle of what was historically a dry lake bed. And around that lake, the first peoples of the area live. None were apparently awakened until the Anasazi visited, who may have been visited by aliens, and that information about them was wiped out by the New World Order. And they suggest that 5% of Anasazi tribespeople were awakened, which is nuts because later on in the book, they say the modern rate is about one in 150,000 and Vegas is special for being one in 50,000. But, and one of the things that jumped out as it was going through this quote unquote secret history was in the introduction, we get in character fiction characters in the world using the word effect with a capital E. And here, it also brings back briefly the usage of magic with a K, I assume because it was a hermetic, but that was one of those things where I'm like, I miss you, weird word with a K in it. Um, it talks about the Pauti people that came, they were migratory, they were not nearly as awakened, uh, nothing interesting happened then apparently until 1850 when settlers arrived, the people came for beaver, which I find fascinating because if you look at a range map of the American beaver, of just like a standard regulation beaver, the only place in America where beavers cannot be found is pretty well the state of Nevada. So, like, you managed to find the one place you could not get beavers. A mission was set up in the 1850s to convert the local American Indians, which turned into a gold and silver mine, which turned into extractive slave labor. That didn't work out super well. A family owned a very large plot of land. They sold off most of the plot of land except for 10 acres, which uh, was heavily defended by the Umbra. We're going to come back to my beef with this 10 acres later. The town of Las Vegas was built in an attempt to relocate a previous town near to a new railroad, and then the old town mysteriously burned down. And then the Sons of Ether built the Hoover Dam. The workforce that built the Hoover Dam and Lake Mead generated out the other side of it needed some place to be entertained and blow off steam, which helped cause the grow of Las Vegas. At the same time, the local military base was like, we're not going to have a fun place. And that kind of aided Las Vegas in growing. The invention of air conditioning made it a popular vacation spot. Gambling was legal-ish in the area, or at least no one seemingly cared. And then the mob came in because anytime you have a large amount of cash changing hands, they generally want to get their beaks wet. There was an Air Force base that was built near the area. There was a nuclear test site built. And then there's a very long list, a very long outdated list of casinos. Most of the history really focuses on the mortal side and just makes a few passing mentions to the magic of the area. It is interesting to find that the uh, the Hoover Dam, the then largest dam having ever been built, and its gorgeous Art Deco stylings was considered to be an enlightened work of some sort. Well, uh, chapter one, the history chapter of this book, I loved it. And it's been a while since I've loved a revised edition history uh, chapter. Uh, great shadow history for the Anasazi. I, I thought that was really interesting. Even if I don't use it, I, I just love mm -hmm. to have it lurking in the background. So it's like something I could grab out if I'm at a loss during a game session as a storyteller. Uh, the Sons of Ether Hoover Dam Project was a lot of fun for me. 
at first I was reading is like, what? Why are they building a stupid dam? Or I mean, why are these guys building a dam? But then it's like, oh no, this does make sense. Yes, this is Sons of Ether. Oh, this is cool. I can get behind this. So yeah, Mage history is better with Bill Bridges. Uh, I, I got to say, it, it's, it's there's really a marked difference. Um, uh, we've had all of these uh, history sections and chapters for revised edition. I mean, really a lot under Heinig, and uh, most of them were, you know, only so interesting. But uh, now that Bill Bridges is in the direct, uh, the developer seat, um, I'm reading through a history chapter. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, I like this. This is cool. I might use that. I might not. But I uh, love that it's there. Chapter two is entitled Patterns in the Sands and outlines what the state of Las Vegas is now. The first section is just a kind of extended list of all the potential places you could have. There is a key avenue in Las Vegas known as the Strip on which a large number of casinos are located. And it goes through them in great detail, for lack of a better term. This is a case where the actual names by and large are used. For instance, when we were talking about in uh, second edition, there was the companion book. And instead of talking about Boeing Aerospace, they mentioned like Benning Aerospace or something like that. And we have the uh, World of Darkness version of McDonald's, which is O'Tully's and so on. But here, in general, it used the actual names, which I am entirely fine with. I don't see a name a reason to necessarily change that. Sometimes I can see it if you want to change something so you can more thoroughly satirize it by changing the name of a famous CEO or what have you. But otherwise, I'm fine with them calling the Tropicana the Tropicana and not calling it like the orange juice or something like that. Covers everything. Um, for me, this was kind of a blast from the past. My father was a professional truck driver and once a year he would participate in like something like the Consumer Electronics Show and we would go out. Uh, one, one member of the family would join him on this cross-country trip to drop off a huge number of what were then bleeding edge flat panel displays and so on. And I would spend a week wandering the strip while he was setting up for a convention, seeing the Treasure Island and Mandalay Bay and some of the other casinos, some of which have closed was kind of a callback for me. We get a little bit of enlightened information as we go through. For instance, the creep show is this kind of gothic cathedral Halloween themed place that everyone looks like they're a ghost or a goblin but also at the same time some of the staff know that ghosts or goblins and so on exist and try and take them down so i like the idea of a person dressed as a vampire knowing about vampire seeing a vampire and killing a vampire i i don't know what to call it i wouldn't call this book necessarily campy but it kind of leans into the las vegasness of it after that long list of places we get a description of downtown, which was kind of the old Las Vegas, as it were. And then we get some information on the surrounding areas. I generally liked these, where it talks about Lake Mead, which is the largely lake that was created behind the Hoover Dam. The Hoover Dam is generally opposed, they say, by the Dream Speakers in the Verbena, which protects the artificial construction of the dam and the Etherites' response of, we can't hear you over how awesome we are. Boulder City, the federal kind of installation town around the Nellis Air Force Base, Valley of Fire, which I've been to that contains strange pictographs and glyphs covering many of the rocks that people think are important, they, they believe, to the Anasazi. It also notes that there's a lot of turnover in the area and that whenever a hotel rises or falls, that is an opportunity to uh, unearth things. 
on top of that, it also gives some information on uh, what the magical ties are uh, in terms of uh, mages. For instance, it notes that the Luxor was d designed by a hermetic who was going to use the light to do something. It doesn't get real specific. And it receives a lot of Rogue Council transmissions. And that mage was able to convince a uh, financier to build it because they did not themselves have the funds to do so. It also notes that Circus Circus contains a laser tag place where technocrats kill people. And they specifically say that that is not true. But at the same time, they quickly mention that there is a marauder called the Mime that everyone keeps their eye out for. And I really like that because they're like, no, this one thing, this is ridiculous. This other thing is the thing that you should be wetting yourself over. And I'm like, yep, that's my mage. Um, <laughs> it talks about how the theming of Las Vegas, where you may have an entire hotel that is supposed to look like 1920s New York or like a giant circus or is just like themed around hats, uh, will carry resonance that will make certain effects easier to do. And again, I feel like that's a little bit campy, but I'll, I'll run with it. It talks about how this, uh, the uh, different chantries that are kind of set up in different places. It talks about how the Venetian is full of ghosts, which I thought was an interesting choice because I'm like, I think the Venetian is still relatively new as of the, the writing of this book. It makes mention that Las Vegas has a number of access tunnels beneath it that kind of functions as arteries to keep vital infrastructure moving, and that is an opportunity. And I don't know about you, Adam, but whenever I hear tunnel, I think vampires. So uh, that, that gives you a place for you to, to shove more Nosferatu than anyone can shake a 10-foot stick at. The old stories in second edition vampire about, oh, underground, yeah, it's full of Nosferatu. Have your characters, what, you guys are here too? Good grief. Yeah. <laughs> it also lists I-95 as going through Las Vegas, which made me laugh because I-95 is an East Coast interstate. That's supposed to be U.S. Route 95. And Terry's uh, pedantry corner is closed for this episode. The devil is in the details, and so is Terry. Yes, and I find the devil every time. <laughs> it makes mention of a place called Block 16, which is this like underground porn haven. And I'm like, does this have a real world analog? It, did they just need a place? They're like, well, the Nafandi could be anywhere. And they probably are. But we need like a place where it's super obvious that the Nafandi could be there <laughs> or something like that. I don't really know where that came from. Boulder City is the iteration X stronghold where gambling is legal. Area 51, I appreciate that they said, we're not going to tell you what's here. Like, that would just be ruining the storyteller's fun. Here's some options, go nuts. And I, I much prefer the, if you're not going to tell me what's there, tell me that you're not going to tell me what's there so I don't accidentally put something there that is later contradicted. <laughs> One of my favorite chapter or like section headings that exist in all of mage small towns and big time prostitution one of the ones that made my heart that gave me feelings was it, the yucca mountain section where they're like by 2010 this place will surely be up and running and storing massive amounts of nuclear waste and i'm like oh that's that's cute you thought <laughs> so uh yucca mountain was a nuclear waste storage site that was set up in the united states in the state of nevada it's a roughly one mile, little bit more tall conical mound of volcanic rock in Nye County. And the original plan was to dig into it for about a thousand feet and then stay a thousand feet above the water table and just put these giant casks of nuclear waste in there to sit out the uh, 10,000 years until that nuclear waste would theoretically become uh, much, much safer. And uh, that site was never built. Various irregularities were found during the construction process where they're like, you realize this is tectonically active? And they're like, oh, how could I miss that? And it also includes one of the weirder bits of revised Metaplot, which I absolutely love. When we were talking about Sorcerer Revised, 
the Nephites are a group of characters who are Mormon-ish mages that learn sorcery. And recently, in January of 2000, all of them but one died. And the one that didn't die, uh, Jedediah Baker, made contact with the Celestial Chorus and talked about a demonic spirit that prophesied that he would rule over the world until it was defeated or allayed or something like that by all of the Nephites, and all of them died but him, which is nuts. And then later on in the book, it drops a reference to the fact that, oh yeah, this happens to the Nephites from time to time. Like, they all but one die, and I'm like, oh, that's pretty metal in terms of things that happened in the world of darkness. I really want to create a meme of the form, like maybe the Willy Wonka meme, where it's like, oh, you think this is the, this is the case? Like, in Vampire, people will be like, oh no, we have another Gehenna coming, a whole bunch of people are going to die, and it's going to suck. And then the Nephites are like, really? A couple of people are going to die? Every century or so, all of us but one die, and you're complaining that the mages are like, hold my beer. <laughs> I'll show you how to wipe out a faction. And then it finally ends with the area of Big Spring, which they, again, don't specifically define, but they give you a few options. That this is the original 10-acre plot that uh, one of the families that in inhabited the area kind of kept back it contains a lot of quintessence it seemingly flows directly into rocks no one can quite place where it is it may contain a five-point node and the thing that really gets me about this is 10 acres is not that big like there are 640 acres in a square mile 10 acres is not that large and to hide a five-point node in there i i needed a little more information it suggests that it's heavily protected by umbral something or others, and we never get any umbral something or others. I like the idea of there being secretly a big node that's really close to Las Vegas that is in some way obscured, but I wanted a little more information about how it was obscured. I saw a lot of nice things in this chapter. It was nice to see the, the Luxor uh, chosen as the uh, traditions chantry. Uh, Luxor, of course, is still around today, and about, I don't know, maybe two or three years after this book was put out, uh, I stayed for a week at the Luxor. Yeah, the ride on the ground floor was, was really super cheesy, but the, the hotel was nice. It was really cool to stay there. It was, it was a different sort of construction. I, uh, after staying there for a week, I can see how someone would look at that in place and say, that place and say, yeah, I'll bet uh, mages were doing some weird mystic uh, architecture here to pull something off because it's like, yeah, this really is a different building. And, uh, you know, the pillar of light that shoots up at night, that does look pretty darn cool. There are a few um, illustration maps in here showing you know, sections of Las Vegas. Uh, I think maybe two of them. And uh, these days, normally in these World of Darkness supplements, when I see a map, I think, oh, the internet map is much better now. But actually, these maps are more useful than most for me because they show a couple of city blocks and then they point out all of these things here. So it actually makes it easier for me to go to um, an internet map and then get a sense of like where things are. I can look between the two, and it, it just really helps me. So these maps, are, for me, really are not outdated. I, I think they are useful. At first, as I was reading through the list of casinos here, I was starting to think, well, you know, this is kind of boring. They're not doing anything with these casinos. They're not putting any supernatural factions here or, or you know, shadow history here or anything. They're just saying these are the hotels. But then as I got to the end, I realized that a lot of times... These days when I'm reading my mage books, I approach it from an adult's point of view. And I forget that back in the you know late 90s, early 2000s, there were a lot of teenagers who were buying and playing World of Darkness games. And back when I was a younger, like you know, mid-range teenager, I remember getting together with my friends once or twice and 
talking about the stuff we'd seen in Las Vegas, look at some photos out of a book or magazine or something and see all the different uh, hotels. And, And when you're that young, pictures have a real big impression on you. And it makes sense for me to say, okay, we're going to put the traditions uh, in this one casino and this other casino. We're going to have a syndicate construct. And for the rest of them, we're just going to tell you what the casino is. We're going to give you a little bit of information of what sort of thing is there. And then you can put your own events or supernatural factions there. I think especially young players are really going to like that approach. Because I, I remember when I was you know, 15, I had friends who would look at a photo of, of one casino and say, oh, I love this place. I want to be there. And they'd look at another casino and say, oh, I hate that. Only the worst sort of people would be there. And it's like, look, dude, it's just, you know, blue versus magenta. What is with you? But <laughs> a lot of young people get like that. And so I can understand how they can put, you can pick your own factions at your own casinos. So chapter three is entitled High Rollers and goes into uh, the characters and the magical events that are going on in the city of Las Vegas. And it opens up with a listing of the four main chantries, the Black Pyramid Chantry, which is centered at the Sun Chamber, which is a hidden location deep below the Luxor Casino. It is led by Malcolm Henry, a hermetic mage. It is multi-traditional. It has something of a node and does a lot of information training. We have the Big Spring Chantry, which is dedicated to protecting the legendary Big Spring node, but the thing that gets me about this is they're protecting the node, but they don't actually know where it is, which seems kind of weird, or at least I I was not able to clearly establish that they knew it was necessarily going on there. That is the other traditional chantry, so it kind of separates like the more naturalistic chantry consisting of a verbena, an orphan, and a dream speaker, and here's the everyone else chantry, including the other traditions. And then we get two technocratic constructs. We get the Advanced Energy Commission, which is located at Nellis Air Force Base that is dedicated to high-tech research with many results that are not yet ready to be debuted onto the timetable. And then we get the Cloud Room Construct, which is located in the Stratosphere Tower, which is strictly consisting of Syndicate Mages. And then we get characters. In some cases, these are quite interesting. AEC, as I mentioned, which is located at Nellis Air Force Base, was created after the Atomic Energy Commission was shut down. And my heart went out to this because one of the things you will see in video games, teen literature, and RPGs is an organization is shut down or like there's a bad organization and they have a front company and they have the exact same initials. So the Atomic Energy Commission was shut down and it was replaced with the Advanced Energy Commission and no one realized that they were tied to one another even though they happened, one was formed at the same time that the other one went away and one used a whole bunch of stolen equipment from the other and people were like, aha, our evil plan is going perfectly. I'm surprised they don't have a volcano lair. It likely contains unknown armaments, so storytellers have fun if your characters are going to raid that. It is led by Brigadier General Oscar Martin who considers himself the responsible heir to nuclear power and he thinks that the technocracy comes up short compared to the geniuses of the past. We also get information about Dr. Deanna Holmes, the progenitor, and I don't know how long this streak is going to last, Adam, but we are now two for two for books that contain technocrat Nazi scientists. <laughs> so I, I don't know if that's yeah, going to... Yeah, a bit con- of a theme there. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to continue into Dead Magic's Two Secrets and Survivors, but if it does, I look forward to seeing how that, that needle is threaded. This is a character that periodically looks like a young woman, did progenitor research under the Nazis, is also a noted man-hater. And I, I just like that as a note. You're like, men are stupid and women should be allowed to nurture the world, but you can't. So you will rule the world with an iron fist until you get to nurture again. Nazi. 
And you're like, well, that's that's a choice. Um, in addition to that, we get information about the cloud room construct, and I will now list all of the members of it. Remarkably generic syndicate member number one with a retay four. Remarkably generic syndicate member number two with a retay three. Remarkably generic syndicate mobster who is Irish. And then slightly more interesting syndicate member who is indigenous and believes, eh, everyone's just trying to screw everyone else. At least I should make some money for my people in the process. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's at least a little bit new. And finally, Space Marine, who survived real Nam and is now dealing with political Nam, so he can start Space Nam. <laughs> the Void Engineer, Major Thomas Houston, or Houston, depending on what area of the country you are in, is very dedicated to taking the war to what he believes are extraterrestrials that are abducting humans and stealing their dreams, which is the greatest reason for the technocracy, I think, to fight changelings that has ever been given in Mage. And is just trying to keep things on the down low until he can get the operational autonomy to do what he wants. And it's kind of interesting because he mentions that he gets along with the technocracy but does not get along with control. And has rolled into Panopticon thinking it will give him the opportunity to access more things. And I, I thought that was an interesting take on the meta plot changes with inside the technocracy and some of the characters that may have a, a unique view on things. He thinks that the greys are creating hybrids and is kind of annoyed that control seems happier to deny his theories than to declare war against their true off-world foes. I very much like the idea of the characters encountering this person and uh, teaming up with them and being like, yeah, we have a common el uh, element, you and I, tradition mages, and then being like, yeah, that's good to know. We're going to fight. And he just cuts them off and he goes, we need to kill the dream-killing aliens that are trying to create hybrids. And they're like, maybe we shouldn't have allied with the technocracy. Maybe that was a poor choice. Um, but he's got forces for, so he can often get his point across. The next section we get are the traditionalists. Here we get information on Jedediah Baker, who was a awakened, the sole, I think, awakened member of the Nephites, the group of represented generally as Mormons who purport to have received a revelation on how to do magic several centuries before the Common Era and was trying to shack up with various, various magical sources to figure out the mystery of who performed the occult sacrifice that killed his wife, found the sympathetic shoulder within the church, uh, rose quickly through its ranks, and then headed up kind of this showdown between the Nephites and this entity that claimed that for 10,000 years it would reign. There's also a note that says, well, the Nephites are part of the chorus now. Wonder if they're going to be as troublesome as the Knights Templar. Hmm. <laughs> I think that makes a really cool buddy cop drama where it's like, he's a Mormon missionary priest. He is a, <laughs> a Catholic nun armed to the teeth or something like that. This is the Celestial Chorus. But it indicates the Nephites have joined. Uh, we get a few other uh, traditionalist characters as well. Aurora Time Prostitute is kind of an interesting one. And they do the thing where they don't understand how division works, where they're like, you do this many jobs at this much, and now you make this much money. I'm like, that would indicate this person is doing this many tricks a day. That's more a comment on athleticism than morality, if that's what you're trying to get across. We get white guy who joins the Dream Speakers as a character archetype. We get more information on Malcolm Henry, the designer of the Luxor. I was particularly fond of the Malcolm character because it's a mage, it's a traditionalist mage that did something interesting in setting and changed the world. I really like when that all ties together where you're like, oh yeah, you're in the Luxor. This is the guy 
who designed the Luxor and he's in the game. And now you have a source of information that could be like, oh yeah, there's this hidden room here that uh, the channels quintessence, something, something, something. And, and I, that is much richer than just giving me a magical location or a magical person. It kind of uh, weaves it to, together well. We also get Butch Jones, who looks identical to Rob Riggle. And then we get a sleeper member of the Star Council, along with a few other uh, characters. And this book does something periodically where character art is of actual people. And I'm not entirely sure who those people are. And at some point, if I can contact the authors, I should reach out and be like, so, Willie Red Spring the sorcerer. What's what's up with him? We get information on the mime and it does show a picture of a reasonably menacing mime, which is not a line I think I would be saying on Mage the Podcast, yet here we are. We get a few more uh, sleepers and overall we get a lot of just kind of uh, characters to run with. So if you, like me, just like having a bunch of uh, character templates to grab from, that's all here. We also get a single spirit, which is the, uh, the spirit deuce is kind of a bad spirit who convinces people to do bad things and feeds off of it because of how bad bad spirits are and presented as a tall thin greasy rat-haired skin-like corpse in leather pants and a prodigy t-shirt this was the first section where i really felt like they were making fun of people that i had never met before and that continues through the rest of the book kind of with some pot shots at uh wizards of the coast later and black dog game factory but uh i'm going to ignore those because those are obvious inside jokes that made the book clearly worse and i hope the people who made them thought they were funny that's a little too snarky for even me and i will probably cut that from the final thing but hey adam how did you like chapter three <laughs> I thought chapter three was great. Uh, early in the chapter, it says that there are 25 mages in Las Vegas plus visitors. Uh, I, I thought that was interesting. Now, it's not saying every mage city is going to be like that, but um, for me, I can pull up on um, Anders Mage Page 2.0, the uh, two demographics uh, articles by um, uh, Paul Strack. Uh, that gives me some context for how to how to work with numbers like that, what numbers like that would mean. And so I thought, I thought that was, was quite interesting. I would probably drop the Big Spring Chantry, you know, three low-powered tradition mages who have heard the rumors that there's a big hidden node and they know that people want to find it. They themselves don't even know where it is, but they want to keep everyone else from knowing where it is. That was just... It was just it isn't interesting. It, it, it seems like um, if my players met those NPCs and heard their agenda, they would say, "Wow, you clowns are really clueless, aren't you? Why, why don't you get a real job, or why don't you find a real goal, or, or something like that?" It's just I, I just don't think I could work with them. Um, I thought it was very interesting uh, the uh, treatment they gave the the Nephite priesthood, uh, the sort of kind of old school Mormon uh, sorcerers. Uh, they were a faction in the first Sorcerer book, which was technically a World of Darkness book, and that was around Mage 2nd Edition. Then in Revised Sorcerer for Mage Revised Edition, it says the Nephite Priesthood met something ugly in the desert, and they're gone now. And uh, now it says, hey, well, there, there is one, and uh, he's actually an Awakened Mage, and he's uh, training others and, and growing the faction again. And this has happened before, by the way. It's like, oh, wow, kind of interesting. Now the Nephite Priesthood has joined up with the Celestial Chorus, and how well that goes, anyone can say. But it, but it is interesting. They, they really continue this revised edition trend of, of scooping groups up and 
putting them into the traditions, which, which can be good or bad, depending on how you want to run things. But I just thought it was really interesting that yet another uh, vaguely Christian group has been brought into the uh, celestial chorus fold. Whether or not that works up is works out is uh, up to you guys. Um, some of the NPCs didn't appeal that much to me. I liked that they had a Nefondus and a Marauder in here, but when I read the descriptions for those, they didn't really seem all that interesting. Uh, it's like uh, the Nefondus is really into porn and, and really, you know, warps and, and mistreats people that way. It's like, well, yeah, I guess that's kind of a boilerplate typical Nefondus in, in a lot of the pages of Mage. We've seen a, a number of those before. I mean, if you're going to give me a Nefondus, make it interesting. You know, the, the mime for the Marauder, it's like, I guess that could be kind of interesting, but there's just not much done with it. It's like, yeah, he puts on face paint and he doesn't talk and he wanders around. It's like, mm, okay, this, this sounds like Marauders that we've encountered before in Mage, so yeah, I'd like to see something a little more interesting there. What was interesting to me was PC uh, Doc Holly David, uh, a woman who has uh, medical skills and she patches up uh, players and, and other mages who get injured who don't want to go to a real hospital where everything gets recorded and reported to the police if it looks suspicious. And yes, doctors can look at a bullet wound and say, that probably wasn't an accident. I'm telling the cops. As a storyteller, I, I think I can somehow forget how important it is for the players who are doing, you know, action adventure kind of things to have unofficial medical help. You get hurt, you want someone to patch you up, but you don't want it reported to the general authorities of your city. And so yeah, I like how they included this because it is an important, often overlooked detail for people. But basically, I'm ready for chapter four. Chapter four uh, is entitled Questing for the Story. And from the people who brought you long list of casinos full of real world information brings you long list of casino games. Uh, so it goes over Baccarat, Bingo, Kino, Blackjack, Craps, Money Wheel, Poker, Roulette, and Slots. And it literally goes through the mechanics of how to play games. Uh, in addition to that, it talks about the security of a casino and how one of the key things is everyone is constantly watching everyone from the dealers who are being watched by a shift head, who are watched by a pit boss, who are being watched by some other sort of lead that everything tends to be on camera, especially whenever there is a money transaction, at least two pairs of eyes are generally going to be it professionally from the, the staff. It does a thing that I'm not sure how I feel about where it both says Las Vegas is great. You can do an Ocean's Eleven style heist if you want to, but also here's why that is nearly impossible. And then in other places it's like, but with magic and the opening fiction even goes to the point of saying, huh, even with magic, this kind of stuff is nearly impossible. And I'm like, what do you want me to actually do with this then? Like, it's, it's really hard to be like, this is hard, but doable. It then talks about what the underworld looks like. And it kind of seems to miss the point to me of like organized crime is very interested in not necessarily profitable businesses because you don't see a lot of organized crime to the best of my knowledge, getting into like software as a service and like academic journals, which generally have very high profit margins, but they're often looking for uh, cash rich industries. Uh, the reason casinos are sought after is not necessarily their profitability. Uh, casinos rise and fall at a regular enough pace to show that they are not a guaranteed moneymaker, but the huge amount of people walking in with cash presents a huge opportunity for money laundering in the same way that in a lot of cities historically one of the most common industries owned by organized crime was laundry services because that is a cash only high throughput volume industry where individual transactions aren't really recorded and if $30,000 suddenly appears and is slowly brought through in the form of quarters over the course of uh, four months 
no one is going to notice. Another common one are uh, concerts and ticket events where it's not uncommon to have a large number of people just show up the same day and pay with cash. So, uh, uh, Terry and the accounting of organized crime. Yeah, you seem to know a little too much about that. We're going to have to have a talk after this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My friend Vinny the Snitch says, <laughs> actuary by day, accountant by night. So, uh, in addition to that, it presents a section entitled Supernatural Elements. This left a little flat because I, I really thought this was going to be the section where it's like, oh, and here are the vampires and here are the werewolves and so on. And we get a few throwaways, but uh, ultimately I'm kind of fine with this because it's like, yeah, this is mage. This is a big mage city. There may be other people here. You don't have to make this. World of Darkness super friends. And I'm like, hey, no. okay. And then it gives some advice on giving stories where it talks about literally introducing unpredictability into your game. And I'm like, that's literally why we roll dice. Like that is the fundamental theory of conflict resolution within a role-playing game. I think the idea here was to use dice to determine what events happen almost in the like D&D random encounter table sense. And it recommends using cards and possibly playing out actual games. It recommends using uh, the tarot as kind of a way of guiding. It also talks about word storms where you pick two words at random from a large dictionary on the same page. But when that kind of threw me off, because if you do that in dictionary, you're going to get a string of words that all start with the same letter and possibly letters. So I may have been missing a step in there. Uh, And then it ends with a section that says stories are not roulette wheels. Don't make things random. And I'm like, then why did you just tell me how to make things random? It also specifically mentions to Adam's point earlier that, uh, that there are 25 active mages within Las Vegas, plus a few more that walk through, but that more or less one in 150,000 people in the city is awakened. And that raises a bunch of questions because if people notice that, I think a lot of people are going to investigate the magic of Las Vegas, which I think is also an interesting and viable uh, character option where suddenly the New World Order is curious about figuring out what is going on there. Maybe the Akashiana and the Euthanatoi are super interested in what is drawing shards or whatever uh, to this particular area. Give some recommendations on keeping it real and using things like a calendar to keep track of things. Later on, though, it does include something that I thought was kind of interesting, which is to come up with plot ideas, look at a local newspaper for that day some number of years ago. So if you just need to figure out what's happening in your supernatural town on a particular day, go to the newspaper for that town, but maybe look two or three years ago and put a supernatural twist on it. And I thought that was an interesting idea and may actually go in the uh, list of techniques I may use in the future. It gives you some information on how to introduce specialized knowledges and what that what that hierarchy is and in this case also introduces finance as an example one as well as what what area knowledge should look like and then it gives you some mechanical recommendations on how to represent gambling and finally there is a section called win free stuff which is kind of a uh, golden ticket like scenario where the characters are uh, invited to an event within las vegas and it turns out it's part of a big old sting operation this one kind of failed for me because anytime the characters get a golden ticket that ultimately results in an ambush, it mentions that like players will sniff out plots you haven't even thought of. And with that in mind, here's a remarkably obvious plot uh, as the technocrats are using his excuse to uh, hunt down reality deviants. So I'm not quite sure how one would actually uh, present that at the table. Uh, we then get kind of a few throwaway characters and some recommendations on where to take it once this initial meetup has occurred. 
and it also gives some recommendations on what to do with the various metaplots that have been presented. It talks about how maybe after the rise of the Rogue Council that people think that Las Vegas is tied to the Old Masters, and that's why uh, the, the Malcolm Hermetic character is believe that the the pyramid was so important that the beam of the Luxor is a communication method, that they, the green dragon, the Nefondus that was introduced, is particularly curious about rogue tra- council uh, activity and that eventually it tracks the technocracy, that the Avatar Storm makes it more important that you have weird cities where weird stuff can happen because you no longer have access to uh, just the odd parts of the Umbra, that you can use sendings to accomplish whatever you want. And they explicitly say, yeah, this is the one part of the meta plot we really haven't detailed because we, we want you to, to run with that. And then it gives a few more uh, story ideas to run with regarding Big Spring Area 51 and how to, how to build your own casino. There was a lot of meat on this bone, a lot going on here. Um, you remarked at the beginning of Chapter 4 how uh, you thought the casino games information was not so useful, and, and I'm actually on the other side of that coin because for Ooh. me it was, it was really useful. I've been to Las Vegas a number of times, but I gambling just doesn't appeal for, to me. It's not exciting or fun for me. I just avoid it. So um, I've been in a lot of casinos. I think the casinos in uh, Las Vegas are very interesting, but the games being run in those casinos, it's just, it was never anything for me. So as a storyteller, I've got players in Las Vegas, and they're like, oh, tell me about this game, tell me about that game. As a storyteller, I'm going to be saying, oh, crap, now now I'm in trouble. But uh, this book gives, tells me what the games are called, and gives me a brief description, and then there's another section where they say, here's how you can use the, the game rules to make this happen, or, or do this or that, and so that was really helpful for me, because as a storyteller, I'm supposed to know something about that. I was disappointed that they did not talk about how entropy effects are going to be different in different places. And what I mean by that is in a standard sort of a place, like in somebody's house or on a city street, you know, just anywhere in, in North America, you know, entropy effects are going to be at about the, the default setting. You know, the, the, the core book's description of, of entropy effects is going to apply there. But uh, now we're going to take it to the, the smaller casinos in uh, North Vegas. And uh, yeah, entropy effects are going to work a little different there because not only is there a lot of entropy, you know, games of chance going on, but everything is uh, very closely regulated and very closely observed. And so, yeah, entropy effects, there's going to be something different about them. And then level three, you go to the big resort casinos on the strip and there everything is very tightly observed, very closely controlled. Um, done very frequently there. So yeah, entropy effects are, are just not going to be the same as they are in somebody's apartment in New York City. So I would have liked to have seen something called out about that, and I, I didn't see it. It says on page 102 that Las Vegas is a mage city, which was kind of weird for me. I, I guess they're trying to say that there are werewolf cities and vampire cities and mage cities, and, and the super and other supernaturals know that. It actually says here that, uh, yeah, when vampires and werewolves come through Las Vegas, they say, oh, this is a mage city. I better keep a low profile and, and move out of here quickly. And um, I guess that's one way you can run your, your uh, World of Darkness Chronicle. I, I don't do that myself. I have all of the supernaturals in all of the cities, and there's no sense of this one is for mages and this one is for vampires. Although I would say that um, all large cities in my uh, chronicles are known to be centers for vampire activity. And so the mages who go to large cities say, yeah, I, I know there's vampires here. I'll talk to some locals and find out the few spots I avoid. And uh, since I've been to big cities before, I know a trick or two for identifying or avoiding vampires. But other than that, yeah, I don't have mage cities. 
I liked the advice on using gambling props, like like physical cards or, or chips, etc., um, on the table. Now, of course, this was written when most people were playing offline in person. Nowadays, a lot of games are happening online, and not just because of uh, health concerns in the U.S. in, in 2020 and, and 2021, but even without that, there's a lot of people just playing online because they want to play with people far away, and it's convenient. And so in that case, this advice on gambling prompts to, isn't really going to do much for you. But but if you've got an old-school game and you're all in the same room, then uh, this might be kind of fun. And it also has advice on how to tell when people are focusing on the props more than than using them as part of the scene it's like okay if this is distracting your players not a good thing here's what to watch for maybe you want to move it out at this case and so very good advice on that uh, there's some interesting storyteller advice terry mentioned it uh, using a calendar or or some other techniques that we have not seen in previous mage books and uh, i thought that was pretty neat i, I might try something uh, with with the calendar in one of my future games uh, top of uh, page 107, it says there's one mage per 150,000, and that is the revised edition default. So again, I can take that number and go to uh, Demographics and Mage by Paul Strack and work out what, it, what does that mean? What would a world uh, of darkness look like with those kinds of numbers? And is that what I want? Do I need to move my numbers up or down? And so uh, that was handy for me. Nice to see. I like it when the, the writers and developers kind of pull the curtain aside and say, look, these are the defaults we're running on, just so you know. So if, if your defaults are different, then that's going to change things, and now you know. Uh, the sample scenario is a, a, a good kickstart for a, a story or, or adventure in Mage, and I like how it is nothing more than a kickstart. It is a start to a story. It is not a whole story. And sometimes that's, that's what storytellers need. It's like, look, I, I just need to get things started, and then my players are going to have their plans or they're going to have their requests or the things they're asking for, and, and it's, it'll work out from there. A lot of people would make good storytellers, but they're afraid to start because they're afraid they can't handle it. And I think, look, if you just get it started after a session or two, you'll find that it's, you know, like when you're a little kid riding a bike, if you can just stay up, it gets easier and you go on down down the sidewalk and, and it works out. So it's nice that they, they give us a kickstart that is not only usable with sample NPCs, et cetera, but it's very appropriate for Las Vegas and it pulls in uh, a good example of a panopticon operation. And I, I like working with panopticon that was introduced in, in Manifesto, Transmissions from the Rogue Council. I think that's pretty pretty cool. And just like I a like, kid on a bike, it's really hard to stop without crashing into something. I think that's okay, a surprise well, <laughs> that's a surprisingly apt metaphor, I think I think for mage. I can get behind that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not trying to intimidate anybody. You're not gonna hurt yourself. <laughs> yeah. How do I end this? You just you just run into the tree at the end of the lane, Timmy. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I did like how this chapter uh, took metaplot uh, themes that they've introduced in Revised Edition and, and worked it into Las Vegas, which you can use or not use as you need. I just like to, to see them there. It was handy for me. Because as I said, if I'm going to do anything with Revised Edition, I'm definitely using the Rogue Council. That, that is my handle on Revised Edition. Next is something that I, I really want to talk about. The writers in the book say on page 114 that one of the downfalls of the first two editions of Mage was the ease of exploring and, and getting to other realms. You know, they're talking basically about the Umbra. They're not talking about Tibet or something or the Amazon rainforest. They're talking about getting into Middle Umbra, High Umbra, Low Umbra, etc. And it was saying that this was a problem with Mage and, and now we've got this fix and isn't that nice? And as a Mage fan and a Mage storyteller, I gotta disagree. I, I don't 
think that that was really a downfall. It, it was saying that, you know, they said in this chapter that uh, mages can, can walk off into the Umbra and they don't have a reason to come back, and, and isn't that awful? And I, I gotta say again, I, I disagree. In the first iteration of Mage, back in early first edition, the quintessence came from Earth. If, if you wanted quintessence, it came from Earth. So you had to go to Earth and get it. You couldn't wander off into the Umbra and, and oh, I'll just get some quintessence on the way. No, it's not there for you. Uh, you've got to go back to Earth to get it. And so this was a powerful motivator for mages to not only visit Earth again, but to base their operations, their factions, cabals, etc., on Earth, because that's where the quintessence was. Now, midway through first edition, uh, Bricado kind of changed that, and he said, no, Earth is not the only source of quintessence. You can find it in the Deep Umbra. You can pull it out of people, like so many of the technocracy constructs were doing. And so that was changed uh, fairly early on in Mage. You know, that can be interesting, but I think one of the unintended consequences of that was, oh, the, uh, now uh, mages can wander off into the Umbra, and maybe they can be find, finding uh, quen- plenty of quintessence there. It is noted in early editions of Mage that if you wander off into the Umbra and just stay there, you will turn into an umbral spirit. You will dramatically transform, and you will not be a human being or a human mage anymore. And so I think this is another motivator for mages to spend some time in the Umbra, but then come home to Earth. And people will say, oh, well, there's Horizon Realms. Well, yes, if a mage stays in a Horizon Realm, they will not transform into an umbral being. However, every Horizon Realm has a direct connection to Earth, bringing in quintessence to keep it functioning. So anybody hanging out in a Horizon Realm, they are paying very careful attention to the nodes on Earth that makes their Horizon Realm uh, survivable. Mages are not wandering off into the Umbra and staying there forever. They keep coming back to Earth. So I just disagree that uh, made the early editions of Mage um, had some sort of fatal flaw that had to be fixed. I think it was narratively difficult to come up with a reason to force people back to Earth when it seems so obvious that the High Umbra would be a Mage playground. The rules for Quintessence, there isn't much reason to engage with it, to me. Like, the minus one difficulty you get by having access to a node, like, the risk-reward for that seemed, seemed way off. Like, it is one of those interesting cases where narratively, yes, they do, within the cosmology of the game, they're like, no, 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 you need to go back to Earth. That's where that's where all the action is happening. That's where the Ascension War actually is, and so on. And then you're like, oh, man, quintessence is so important. What is the huge mechanical benefit? Oh, I get minus one to the difficulty of an effect once. Well, I guess it varies. It varies with groups. I've I've had mage players that like, oh, I'm out of quintessence. I need more. And they tell me the storyteller, I'm I I want to get more of this. I I use this. I like this. It's like, (laughs) so yeah. I guess it's different with different uh, different experiences for different player groups. The appendix is entitled "Infinite Third Wishes." And includes a whole bunch of rotes, of which one of the more interesting ones was Nobody Dies in Vegas, which is a rote that for each success on this correspondence to Entropy 4 effect, anyone trying to kill you gets a plus one difficulty, assuming you're actively trying to leave Las Vegas. And I really liked that of a character who is maybe a character that has been placed under a gas or a geish or something like that and is trying to leave, but everyone is trying to kill them and they don't understand why everyone is having such difficulty. Like we're talking like action movie, bad guy, bullet aiming level stuff here. We're just like, there's this hail of gunfire that just happens to completely miss you. And your character has no idea why. And you're just trying to drop off a package or something, but you've been placed under this, this effect. I, I liked that as an option, as opposed to something a character would do onto themselves actively 
possibly to avoid death, that there's another rote called I Know Your Cousin, which is Correspondence 3, Life 1, Mind 2, where you find a person, you can look through the local area to find someone who is related to them, pull some basic biographic information about the person they are related to, and then use that as a source of information to convince the first person that you actually uh, have an in with them. Uh, I also think that presents a pretty interesting like role-playing opportunity as you give the characters the bits of information they have to weave it together into something that is convincing to try and to try and convince the pit boss to to let them walk away with all of their chips or to convince them that they're part of internal security or something. We get one wonder, and it is a 10-point gadget, nuclear bomb. And as friend of the show, Charles Siegel is fond of pointing out, since it is a gadget, they are produced in small batches. So as opposed to just one at a time. And it gives information about this Forces 5 Matter 3 Prime 2 effect. And uh, let's just read this sentence. In rules terms, a nuclear bomb requires Forces 5 Matter 3 and Prime 2 combined with an unhealthy dose of science or specialized knowledge related to atomic weapons. The effect requires Forces 5, and you're telling me the science portion is unhealthy? I find that questionable. That's just me. Uh, it also mentions that making one requires tasks in the form of plutonium, heavy hydrogen, or uranium-235. If you're using heavy hydrogen, you're making a thermonuclear device, which is at another scale. And like, it's like, if the players demand a system. If the players are demanding a system, that tells you something about their players. It says it causes at least 10 health damage levels of aggravated, unsuckable damage. Like one of the mightiest of paradox storms. It's a nuclear device. We know what an A-bomb will do. You don't need to compare it to something that doesn't exist. But then we get rules for resonance. And it is a system that was supposed to be in the core that was not actually included. And here it is. And it gives you an option that for a cost of three experience points times whatever level you would like it to be at, you can increase your resonance. It breaks into one of the three categories of static dynamic or entropic. And if what you're doing kind of jives with it. It reduces the difficulty by one for each point of resonance that you have. Uh, if it doesn't jive, it increases it. If it doesn't really care, it doesn't modify things that when you're rolling, you take the the highest and the lowest trait and they kind of cancel them each other out. And then you can have some sort of uh, net thing. It can also influence social roles, which I kind of liked. And then it gives a bunch of rules on how to use prime to move around resonance. So we, we finally got it. We finally got, we finally got resonance rules, Adam, just, just in time for revise starting. And then the book closes. Uh, for the appendix, um, most of the roasts were kind of nothing special for me. I mean, I kind of liked how they were more appropriate to Las Vegas than to other places. But for the most part, not so exciting. However, the nobody dies in Vegas, that, that's something I could, I could play with. And, and like you said, rather than a, a conscious rote, having it more of a background effect uh, is a cool way to play with that. But um, now when it comes to the um, resonance rules, this, this was a big surprise for me because the resonance rules are, are new and revised edition in the core book at the very start in 2000. And uh, when I read through them, it's like, okay, this, this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I don't really know how to use this. In, in fact, I'm not motivated to want to use this. So I, I just, my thought was, you know, drop this. And, and now here, toward, we're getting towards the end of revised edition. We're well past the halfway point. And now it's like, oh, here's those revised uh, edition resonance rules. And I read through these, and it's like, oh, th this makes sense. I, I kind of get it. I know how to use it now. Um, I, I, now I, I think I, I could enjoy using this in my games. The funny thing is, 
it makes the book kind of important. Uh, this Las Vegas City book, it's like um, if I'm not putting a game in Las Vegas, I, I may not really need this this book so much, although there are some fun things in it. But but with these resonance rules, it's like I'm not running revised edition without the Las Vegas book. It's got to be there. I'm going to put it, uh, you know, I'm at least going to review these um, at, at the start of planning my revised edition chronicle because um, without this, the resonance rules just don't add up for me. So, yeah, this is a, a vital nugget of core rules for revised edition buried in a city book towards the end of the edition. A little unusual, but hey, much rather have them than not have them. So, yeah, these are not only great, they're for me for revised edition, they're vital. I'm glad that they're finally here and they are well laid out. They do make sense. Um, the examples are good for me. There was not only the revised core book, but there were a few books before this where they talk about resonance. They give some examples. And I was like, this this is nothing to me. Yeah. Um, he, he's dynamic, fiery, like fiery personality or like fire comes out of his nose. Or like, well, What do you mean fiery? This yeah. example is nothing for me. But, but here in this book, in this appendix, I read the examples like, Okay, I get it. This makes sense. Thank you for finally making sense on resonance. So, yeah, that's that's the appendix. But, so, Terry, what did you what do you think, like, sort of general overall for this book? I have difficulty overcoming how dated the material is. I think your explanation of the gambling rules has changed my mind because I could very much see a character rolls and they get their one success or fails and the the storyteller needs to narrate what happened at the table to cause that failure and knowing the rules to be like ah yes your pie gal hand did not come out or like this is this is what was revealed on the turn uh in your blackjack game that caused you to win or lose or something like that uh in in retrospect that now makes sense you formal you formally changed my mind um <laughs> bringing the total number of times that has happened into the low triple digits uh, Adam changes my mind with a certain degree of regularity. It is hard for me to overcome the uh, amount of stuff that just isn't present. But once you get beyond that, I would not call this book necessary, but I would call it useful. To me, this book is almost a storyteller compendium where it's like, here's a whole bunch of NPCs. Here's some roads. Here's how, here's how a city works. I would have almost wanted to make it a little bit bigger and make it almost a generic city source book, like how to mage in a city that isn't urban grunge or something like that. Because I think a lot of the things in here could be slightly modified and applied to uh, Los Angeles or uh, Disney World, or something like that. Yeah, the, the, actually, I didn't think of that when I was reading through this book, but uh, we have had uh, two uh, mage books in the past that said, Mage in the Big City, let's get into it. And I think it was like Orphan Survival Guide, and then... Uh, Destiny's um, Price, I guess. De or, yeah, Destiny's yeah. Price. And, and, and the thought was, this is a, a dirty, grungy, rough city. And it's like, yeah, Las Vegas isn't really like that. So, yeah, there are big cities that, that don't conform to that template. So, yeah, that's a nice point. Yeah, and not to say that there are not bad areas of Las Vegas, just that Los, An Las Vegas works particularly hard to conceal those in a way that in the world of darkness, a lot of those things are not. Uh, in, in fact, uh, there are forces within the world of darkness trying to point you at it. Um, the photographic art style threw me off. This was something that was also used throughout the LARP books, and I'm like, eh. Given the choice between a highly edited digital effect that may contain one of the author's friends or one of the artist friends, like the illustration on page 120 where it's obviously a person wearing a tuxedo jacket over like a t-shirt, I'm like, what are we trying to get across here? Um, with, with stained glass in the background, I, I would have just preferred more Alex Shakeman or Leaf Jones or whatever. It, it is weird regarding the resonance rules. You're like, oh, okay, this, this, this kind of makes total sense. I'm glad this explains everything. Because as you mentioned, in previous books, it'll be like three dots of entropic resonance, cheese colored. And you're like, what does that mean? Um, or like static 
petunias. And you're like, what? What is even going on here? It, you get this weird thing where it's like, I'm going to run a revised campaign. What do I really need? And you're like, well, obviously you need the court rule book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you probably need the bitter road to explain everything else about the setting. That wasn't able, well, obviously, yeah, I would do that. Yeah. Also, Fallen Tower, Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, why is that? Yeah, just the last two pages. Everything else will be fine. Like, I, it, this is one of those things where I wish they released those like last two pages as a Storyteller Vault supplement, uh, like just free so people playing revised could just have it. I like its presentation of a city as being weird and dynamic, and it's it's a mage take on a city in the same way that, as Adam said in the mention, in the introduction, like Rage Across the Blank gives you a lot of information on the crazy feral things the characters could encounter. Las Vegas by night would would include all of all of those things appropriately for vampire. Um, I, this gave a lot of weird stuff and a, a very dynamic thing where things are coming and going. I would have liked a little bit more unexplained weird stuff maybe a little bit more information on area 51 or what have you but that's just me complaining that the knobs aren't exactly to where i liked it on the whole i thought it was i thought it was good there was a lot of there was a lot of words i I wouldn't have included but that's me Uh, what did you think about it adam well, first off, I got to let everybody know that this book, uh, one of the ways this book is really outdated is it, it makes multiple references to the really cheap buffets in Las Vegas. And I have from, <laughs> I have from that several, too, actually. Yeah, from several reliable sources. Uh, they still have buffets there. They ain't cheap anymore. But they're amazing. <laughs> like, it's one of those. Great, yeah, but they yeah. ain't cheap. Yeah. Uh, so, it's it's okay. comparatively unlimited prime rib for whatever price they're asking is still cheap. It is just not, yeah, the new. <laughs> Sorry. No. Yeah, but but back in the day, it's like, oh, four bucks, and I'm gonna go to the buffet. It's like, yeah, not now it's twenty bucks or more. So eh, something to think about. But <laughs> no, I, I remember going back there a few years ago. It's like, oh, I've heard the buffets are really cheap. Not here. Uh, not here either. Not here. I like the fact that if they're gonna make one city book for Mage, they picked Las Vegas because I have been in those large resort casinos where the lighting is like deliberately manipulated and there's no timepieces anywhere. And and these days people don't even wear wristwatches anymore. So there is an otherworldly feel to, to parts of Las Vegas. There is a sort of artificiality to it that uh, it can be very interesting. I mean, from my own experience, whenever I get to Las Vegas, uh, for the first two days, I think it's really cool. And then somewhere in the third day, I kind of burn out on it. And I'm like, okay, th- things are so artificial that I got to go. It is time to leave. But uh, to put a mage game there, I think it really works. I mean, if I, was, if I had to pick the most unusual large city in North America, I would probably pick Las Vegas. It's an interesting place where a lot of coincidental mage effects on a small or a large scale could just work better, I mean, thematically or, or rules-wise, than in a lot of other U.S. cities. So, hey, if you got to pick a city for the only mage book, uh, mage city book, then Las Vegas w- would be my choice, too. So, uh, thumbs up for that. I liked how they made this city unique from a, a typical mage location by saying that in this place we have an an unusual cooperation between the technocracy and the traditions. Uh, Specifically, the syndicate has uh, a really good working, day-to-day working relationship with a cabal of tradition mages, and they know they're tradition mages, and and they actually get a benefit out of that, and they they want to keep that relationship healthy. In fact, it helps them so much that they unofficially look at uh, you know the Luxor and other tradition mage activity in the city and say, 
let's just take a light hand with them. You know, if they get out of line, we got to do something. But if they're not uh, causing trouble, let's just leave them alone because we don't want to endanger this really nice working relationship we have with this one cabal of mages that that does all this work for us. And so it, it makes Las Vegas not. You know, it stands out from other mage places. Hey, here is a place where the Ascension War is working differently than it does in other places. And as a storyteller, I can look at that and say, oh, how might it be really unique in New York or San Francisco, etc.? And so I liked that touch to things. And uh, one thing I would pull in, there was a photo book by Robert Cameron. He did Above Chicago, Above San Francisco, Above you know, all these other cities. And uh, he did one for Las Vegas. It's, it's a book, uh, basically, it's a, a big coffee table book with large uh, photographs. It's called Above Las Vegas by Robert Cameron. Now, it's from 1996. Yeah, it's a little dated. Um, the photos of the casinos on the Strip, that, that's going to be different. However, the photos of the rest of Las Vegas, I'll bet it hasn't changed that much. And what's really interesting is it not only photographs the city of Las Vegas itself, but it also has nice big aerial photos of uh, geographical formations, gorges, parks, recreation areas, etc., that are more wild kind of, uh, of terrain and that are uh, surrounding Las Vegas. And of course, those are not going to change since 1996. The canyon, the gorge, etc. is going to look the same. And uh, there are a few references in this book to um, activities uh, you can have you know, outside of Las Vegas. If you're going to have a chronicle running in Las Vegas for a while, then you're going to get out to the, the state parks and the artificial lake and the recreation areas, canyons, gorges, etc. Especially if people are, are looking for that hidden uh, large node. So yeah, a photo book like this, uh, I think could be, be really handy, could, might even give you some, some great storyteller ideas. Well, I've got uh, a few adventure ideas. I uh, thought I might share those. Whether with a technocracy or Council of Nine, the players are warned to steer clear of syndicate interests in Las Vegas. Finances are generated for much of the western seaboard, and interference is not tolerated. When fire breaks out at the Bellagio, a strange time dilation occurs over several city blocks. Enforcers led by the Void Engineers Border Corps Division keep tradition and the Technocracy's Panopticon members from investigating. The players are then approached by a woman who gives them her husband's briefcase. This woman, led by a mysterious letter, believes the players can free her husband from whatever has altered his mind. The man is an, ac an accountant for the Bellagio, and the contents of the briefcase grant them access to a hidden office beneath the casino. The players discover the syndicate's main concern in Las Vegas is not making money but instituting the mysterious Matheson principles to turn the city into a living pattern that can predict the future. Void engineers are operating underground machinery that manipulates time, uh, prime, correspondence, and entropy. Each node requires a person to become a conduit, but in the process becomes a listless workaholic. Is the syndicate on the verge of a major discovery, or is this a paradox bomb waiting to go off? And who is leaking intel to the players? Number two, ascending that is an amalgamation of a raven and a mountain lion appears to the player, speaking a strange name and warning of evil that has welled up from the ground. If the players investigate, they'll learn from a peyote elder that this is a rare messenger from their ancestors. More than one source reveals a new node has appeared in the Las Vegas area. The players get swept up in the excitement as different factions try to find what they suspect is the big spring node. When the players discover caves beneath the north end of Las Vegas, Lake Las Vegas, they find a strong node. Either from spirit guides or from clues found in the caves, the players learn the node is a trap. An umbral lord opens the node every thousand years to ensnare more mages. Can the players convince their allies to avoid the trap? Can the players resist the tainted tasks found in the caves? Number three, 
After becoming involved with the tradition chantry in the Luxor, the Players Learn electrical equipment has recently been installed at the tip of the pyramid. Malcolm Henry, the hermetic designer of the resort complex, is preparing for a ritual where the nighttime pillar of light reaching to the sky will be intensified long enough to establish a bridge into the Embra. He claims this is a ritual to talk with Enochian angels, but rumors circulate. Some say he schemes with someone in Horizon Realm to bring back the isolated masters. Some say he is under the influence of a suspicious mage who promises allies in the Emerald Courts. The heavily warded storage area in the basement taking mysterious deliveries and the unexplained disappearances of Malcolm Henry aren't helping matters. Offers of help from the technocrats in the Strat Casino, uh, used to be the stratosphere, make it look like something big is about to go down. Can the players get to the bottom of the matter in time? Can they avoid turning to the technocracy for help? Well, those are three ideas specific to Las Vegas. Hopefully those will spark some ideas of your own. And uh, Terry, do you have one of those quotes for us? I do. I have two because I included a quote and a pot shot. Pot shot first. It mentions the Hard Rock Cafe. Among mages, generally only Cult of Ecstasy members stuck in the 70s or 80s are attracted to this place. I'm like, <laughs> boom. Um, <laughs> the other quote is from the introductory fiction, which I like, which said, so I slowed down and rubbed my wristwatch. Once the effect goes off, that's effect with a capital E, I tag the bastard in the back of the head with my shoe. Sexy and aerodynamic. Who knew? The guy falls forward onto his face, and Oz leaps onto him like a panther on prey, putting him in a sleeper hold. Spit it out, asshole! Oz growls, and I'm like, yep, that's my mage. <laughs> so uh, what, what are we reading next, Adam? Next up is Dead Magic 2, even deader. Yeah. Secrets and Survivors, that, that that chonky boy clocks in at something like 111,000 words, and inf Infinite Tapestry is about 140. So if you've been complaining about these books being too short, uh, have we got something for you. And then it's largely smooth sailing until the end of Revised, and uh, I'm excited for some more tradition books. So uh, that'll Definitely. be good. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Well, if you have something to say, please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions, comments, or feedback. Subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and other aggregators. If you like the show, others might like it too. And if you leave a review for Mage the Podcast, it makes us more visible in their searches. We would certainly appreciate it. You can follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at magethepodcast.com. You can listen to past episodes there and see the complete show notes that we prepare for you. Well, this episode is thanks to our executive producers, John Magnuson, uh, Isabel Castillo-Lopez, Michael Credle, uh, Josh Hillerup, Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Michael Parker, Christopher Phillips, Laura J. Sunsern, Bryce Perry, William Martin, John Horton, William Connolly, Brendan Morrill, Andrew Kotz, Jenna F., Andrew Edelstein, Chris Zack, Joshua Golden, Dan Svensson, Andy, Neil Patterson, Buck Farmer, Freddie, Anders, and Justin. If you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast, it would help us keep bringing you episodes like this one. You would also become a part of our own council to discuss upcoming projects. The link in the show notes will get you started. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox, baby. Go change the world. Bye. <laughs>